Back to the EV Diaries. I am your host, Ben. I am an engineer, a distribution engineer for an electric cooperative in southeastern Kentucky. And this is where we talk EVs, and I try to convince you they fit into small town American life. In the last episode, well, it starts out like a comic book. In the last episode, we found our hero unpacking a summary of an EV study commissioned by the NRECA. All right, the NRECA, if you don't know, is the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association. And as the name would imply, that is a association of rural electric cooperatives in America. The last episode, I began offering my opinions on the study well, a summary of the study that the NRECA commissioned on EV ownership. And the details of all of that can be found in the previous episode to this one. Now, before I go on, I want to say the opinions are my own. I do not speak for my cooperative or the NRECA. Last time, we talked about how utilities had the opportunity to educate their members and really put forth a grassroots effort for EV ownership. Now I want to talk about the infrastructure and some things that were mentioned in the report summary, but wasn't particularly written in the article that was the summary of the summary. If you recall, I have spent several episodes touting the importance of infrastructure, and I do think infrastructure is important. And there's a whole chicken and egg scenario here. Do we need more infrastructure now before we have EV owners to use it? Or should we try to promote more EV ownership and let the infrastructure develop as the need does? It's it's really a, a catch-22. But remember, in previous episodes, I determined in my own mind that infrastructure was more for the traveler in your area than it was for the locals. And while I still believe that, uh, because, you know, most charging does occur at home, this report opened a can of worms for me. Actually, it, it made me consider two things that I had not considered up to this point. One is that public charging may be for locals, and it may be the locals' only option for charging. The second thing is that people can have a bad experience charging. And I guess that makes sense. I mean, if you go to a restaurant, you can have a bad experience. I guess if you go to a charger, you can have a bad experience. So let's dig a little deeper into this. I said public charging may be the only option for some EV owners. This is particularly true for renters or people that don't have the adequate wiring or structure in their house that would support EV charging, or at least level two. If you recall, cars come with a EVSE cable, which is your basic level one charging that allows you to plug the car into a standard home outlet. But the problem is this provides energy very slowly. 
And when I say slowly, we're talking three to five miles of range per every charging hour. Now imagine you've got a large battery pack or a very depleted battery pack. This could take a long time. And it could take even longer if you've got a large, very depleted battery pack. So EV owners that live in apartments may not be able to have a level two charger at home. They may not even have an outside outlet that they can plug their EVSE cable into. EV owners in this situation want more stations, obviously. I mean, they want the ability to charge while they're doing other things because they're not charging at home. They want to be able to roll up to Walmart, plug in their car, go in, do their shopping, come back out, unplug, then go to the next place. Maybe it's a doctor's office. Plug in, charge. After that appointment, they come, and then they go home and plan in their routine the next day where they're going to charge. It's a very real problem, and it's one that I'd never considered. The bad charging experience, I think the reason I've never considered that is because I've only charged the co-op's volt on our system, on the chargers that are on our system. I've not dealt with broken cords or disabled stations. I've not dealt with having to move my car once it's charged. Some other problems that were noted in the study report said uh, there's a problem with not being able to control the charge levels in public charging. And there's a school of thought out there regarding charging that you do not want to charge your battery up to 100% and you don't want to deplete it to zero. I know Tesla owners that only charge to 80 or 90% and then they try not to let the battery get below 20. And that's to extend the battery life. And it makes sense. Of course, then I look at the way I charge my cell phone and my laptop. And, um, hmm, those have lithium-ion batteries in those as well. It's probably not, not good for those devices either. Another problem is, and we've discussed it on here, absentee chargers, which is essentially... Cars that stay parked after they're done charging or people who are icing with EVs, which is not really icing. It's, uh, I think I use the term charge blocking and I think I'm going to stick with that. Um, another thing pointed out in the study was station safety. If you're traveling and you don't really know where you are and you go to this station, is it in a safe part of town? Well, that's debatable. I mean, you know, Waze can take you in some places that you may or may not want to go. Um, just saying. And keep in mind, small town America, we're, we're leery of those big cities. Anyway, situational awareness. Uh, but yeah, if you're depending on a, going to a charging station and you're not comfortable being in the area that you're in, um, there's, I mean, it's, it's a legitimate concern. Well, it's a concern. Whether it's legitimate or not is open for debate. And then there was something brought up in the report called accessibility disparity. And let me read verbatim accessibility disparity. People in wealthier areas have disproportionate access to chargers than those in poorer areas. Now, that's a broader issue than just EVs. We could discuss the 
probability of EVs being in more affluent areas than poorer areas. But like I said, this is a broader issue than just EVs, and it's not going to be a discussion for this podcast. Uh, socioeconomic conditions in America, you know, we'll leave that for political commentary. Okay, so here are my thoughts. Again, I do not represent my cooperative, the views of my cooperative, the NRECA, or anybody else other than me. This is the opinion of EV Diaries host, Ben. People in this study want chargers to be as prevalent as gas pumps. Okay? That might be when EVs are as prevalent as ice cars, but we're a long ways away from that in southeastern Kentucky. They also want it to be easier to get in-home chargers. Now, we're going to talk about that when when we get to the charging incentives and the, the in-home charging incentives uh, part of this report. Many think the co-op should provide or subsidize all these infrastructure changes. And I will tell you, this is a slippery slope if you ask the co-ops to pay for it. And why is that? Well, let's look at the history of co-ops. Remember, and this is the history of co-ops in a nutshell. A bunch of farmers got together in the late 30s, took out low-interest government loans to electrify the countryside. That's how co-ops were formed. And part of that is based on the premise that everyone pays their share. You pay for what you use. It's not like communism where we gather it all together and redistribute it. It's a situation where you're charged for what you use. And then we bring all that collectively and are able to do something bigger with it. And this is how we cooperatives, and I'm speaking historically as a group, cooperatives were able to build much of the grid today as we know it, especially in small town America. There's parts of the county, and it's it's hard to believe that I live five minutes, literally five minutes from downtown London. And if it wasn't for a bunch of farmers getting together to electrify the countryside, I would not have electricity at my house. That's a hard concept. Another hard concept to think about is that there are people in this area that grew up and remember not having electricity. I mean, the co-op that I work for has only been in operation 80, 82 maybe years. So it's hard to believe. It's hard to imagine a world that didn't have electricity readily available. But getting back to the slippery slope and asking the co-ops to pay for it. It, there's there's two arguments to be made here. And on one hand, you're asking non-EV owners to pay for EV infrastructure when most cooperative members don't own an EV. So you're basically asking everybody to subsidize a handful of people. And uh, based on the cooperative principles, that violates that everyone paying their fair share philosophy. But on the other hand, and this is the, the counter-argument, the other side of the coin is that the infrastructure is part of beneficial electrification. 
So that means there's more money coming in for the cooperatives to use and operate. It's fair because the EV owners are the ones paying for the energy that is, is being delivered through the infrastructure. And it helps keep the rates low for everyone. So there is an argument for both sides. But it all comes back to perception. And remember, we just talked about accessibility disparity. This seems to be, or the perception is, that this is a rich versus poor issue. Now, the PSC in Kentucky, you know, we, we can't do anything without PSC approval. They are strong on protecting the impoverished in southeastern Kentucky. But, on the other hand, they chose not to regulate EV charging. And that's good because it helps keep an open market for charging and keeps it flexible. It doesn't require constant rate changes at the charging station. Imagine it like this. If an oil company had to file paperwork and get approval every time they raised or lowered gas prices. I come back to what about government involvement, which I am against in most things, but I think as a potential EV owner, I don't really have a problem with an EV tax to help pay for infrastructure. I'm not saying EV, EV tax to totally offset the cost of infrastructure, but I could see that there's a need possibly for that. Um, the government is good at highways, so you would think that charging infrastructure would fall right into their wheelhouse as far as, as being able to plan and maintain that. It's also possible that the government could offer grants to entities wanting to build infrastructure. Of course, counter-argument to that, Tesla, Ford, and Volkswagen, through Electrify America, are doing it themselves to benefit their consumers. Well, Volkswagen, you know, they've got that pesky EPA settlement thing, and that's why we have Electrify America. But, you know, give them credit, they're embracing it. And, you know... <laughs> Again, this is this is the way my brain works sometimes. I'm not aware of grants that were given for gas stations to be built in the early 20th century. And that network developed. Then again, Big Oil was more interested in selling gasoline than Big Auto seems to be in selling EVs. But also, by that token, um, is Big Electric concerned enough with selling energy to pay for and promote infrastructure. I think there has to be a hybrid solution between the government, the utilities, car manufacturers, and EV owners. And together, those groups can make charging readily available. So that comes back to the original chicken and egg question, which comes first, more EV owners or more infrastructure? And that's a harder question to answer than how many licks it takes to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop. So, I went really long on this episode, so I will get into the in-home charging incentives next time. Uh, please, subscribe, rate, find me on social, at EV Diaries. The EV revolution is here, and once we decide how to grow the infrastructure, it should be a fun ride. <music>